0: great to have you with us this morning. I have a, a few of our volunteers that are going to come up this today and they're going to help me build something. So I am aware that they're back here. I'm not going to pay them a lot of attention because I have ADD and a sermon to preach, but we wanted to give you a sense of what's going on. We wanted the kids to participate in what's happening. Ms. Terry's going to be painting. There's a lot going on. So if you're like me, try to just focus on one thing and remember it's for the kids. Okay. All right, so that's where we're starting. If you are joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series called The Story, and we're moving essentially through the entire storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We started on January the 8th. We're going to try to wrap this up around the second week of June. And so uh, one one of... Here's what we've been through thus far. We've seen creation, that God created us in his image and likeness. Um, And This is one of the cool things about this series is it kind of tracks somewhat with where your kids have been in Kidman. They're going through something called the Gospel Project where they too are moving through the storyline of the Bible. The only difference is they're a little bit ahead of us, which is usually the case for our kids these days. And so uh, they now get to join us in this larger story of God redeeming the world back to himself. It starts with him creating us in his image and likeness. Our first parents fell and they rebelled. God then makes a promise. Reflected in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, he says, I'm going to send a seed from the woman, a Messiah who's going to come into the world and they're going to set everything, that individual is going to set everything back in its rightful place. And so the rest of the story of the Bible becomes about this person, this Messiah who's going to come into the world. And then we see the period of the patriarchs, this nation of people that is built on the backs of four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then we see the period of captivity uh, and and restoration, slavery and deliverance, where the, the Israelites end up in Egypt. And Moses has to be raised up to call them out of Egypt and back to their promised land. They then switch leaders and Joshua, the great military commander, leads them into the promised land and they take it back from God's enemies. Very quickly after that, we see a downward spiral, even of God's own people, even though they are Israel, even though they are God's chosen, they are not exempt from the fall. They're not exempt from the sin curse brought into the world by our father, Adam. And so this downward spiral begins in a period called the period of the judges. And then after the period of the judges, we begin to see a period of the United Monarchy. Three kings who rise up, Saul and then David after him and Solomon after him, building this kingdom. And then we begin to see, after Solomon's time, the kingdom begin to fray. Because again, there's this cycle throughout history. Even the very people that God is using to bring Jesus into the world are sinful people. And they're rebellious people. And so last week we talked about the period of the divided kingdom, a period of about 350 years where over time, first the north and then the south would end up defeated by respective enemies, Assyria in the north and Babylon in the south. And that brings us to this period that we're going to cover today, which is the period of Babylonian captivity. God's people are going to be homeless, and we're going to talk about what that looks like. And we're going to do it from the perspective, at least primarily, of two prophets who bridged the gap between that, those last years of the divided kingdom of Israel and the first years of the exile. The first one of those is a man by the name of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Habakkuk is um, he's an interesting character. This is less a direct prophecy and and really more of an inside look into the prophet's own struggles. And it reminds us, uh, hopefully you guys can have some sympathy for me after a, a bit of a survey of Habakkuk, that the life of this man, Habakkuk, reflects the fact that even those of us who proclaim God's word often struggle the most with what we preach. I know you don't sometimes believe that. I know I can come across kind of harsh sometimes. I, I know I can come across very confident sometimes. That's my role. That's what God expects me to be. And when I represent his word, I have to do that. But what you probably ought to know about me or any of our other pastors who get up here is so often when we do, behind that presentation that you see is a heart that oftentimes doubts every bit as much as you do. And, and we see that in the life of Habakkuk. This is a man who struggles greatly. The problem is we don't see a lot of that anymore, even in predominant Christian literature. We used to see a lot more of it. Jim Elliott is a good example of that. A famed missionary to Ecuador and the Wadonia Indian tribe down there who was speared to death by that tribe in 1956. If you read his journals, you will read the story of a man who struggled. A man who struggled internally with the price he might ultimately and would ultimately pay. You you read the works of Leonard Ravenhill, who who is probably the 20th century's most well-known preacher with regard to the subject of revival. And you can see struggle in Ravenhill's life about why that revival isn't coming, not only in the culture and even in the churches, but even in his own heart. You read the story of Henry Nouwen, the godly priest who helped and who ministered to so many, but who very secretly and was long after his death, really before this even came out, struggled deeply with same-sex attraction at a time when even in our culture that subject was taboo and it just couldn't be talked about. And you see this visceral struggle by this, by this man. Those aren't things we read about anymore. There's not things that we hear much about anymore because if you walk into the average Christian bookstore today, you don't see a lot about struggle because we don't want to read about struggle. We want to read about success, right? I want to read about how to get it all. I want to read about how to get get my life together. I I don't want to read about struggle. But one of the things that we learn from Habakkuk is that struggle is an essential part of the Christian experience. And it, it, it emphasizes to us that this thing called the Christian faith is incredibly hard sometimes. It was C.S. Lewis famously quoted for saying, if you want a religion that makes you comfortable all the time and always makes you feel like a winner, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Right? That, that's where we are. And, and this prophet begins in this way. God speaks to him in chapter one verse six and says, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. God is saying, there are a wicked people, hundreds of miles east to you, east of you, in what is now the Republic of Iraq." and they are devouring and destroying every nation around them. They are marching forward in conquest, and I have raised them up. And that creates a disconnect in the mind of this prophet Habakkuk who doesn't quite understand. So, so all three chapters of this short prophecy involve this eternal struggle over this question internally. Habakkuk is asking himself, why is a just God silent when the wicked are victorious over the righteous? Take a look at chapter 1 verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man? Look at these last four words, more righteous than he. If you've lived longer than 15 years on this planet, you have probably asked that question. Some of you wonder because you compare your life with those who don't appear to be following Jesus, they appear to be pagan, they appear to be wicked, and they appear to have it better than you. And you wonder why, don't you? And don't, and you, you don't, don't sit there and look innocently at me. Does it, does it take a confession to get you to admit that sometimes you feel that way? There's some envy. There's some jealousy. God, I've been good to you. God, I've been faithful to you. God, I'm faithful to my church. God, I tithe. God, I serve. I do everything that's asked of me. Throw me the ball. Just let me have it. Let me have a shot. This happens with preachers because we know each other's junk, right? I have a, I have a, a mentor who will actually be with us, talking to our leadership team in a couple of weeks, and he tells his story of, of really, really struggling at one time in his ministry. And just, he had planted a church, he wasn't really sure how things were going, and he walked up on top of a hill, and he looked over to his left, and he saw this big, huge edifice that housed thousands of people on Sunday, and he knew that the pastor there had, was getting ready to go to jail for embezzling over a million dollars. And then he looked over on the other side and he saw another church, equally large edifice, and he knew that pastor had just been fired for having an affair with multiple women in the church. And he closed his eyes and he said, God, I've kept my pants on and my pants and my hands out of the offering plate. What's the deal? See, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been to that place where we think it, our sense of justice tends to go into overdrive when we think we're not being treated fairly. And this is Habakkuk's struggle. If you've ever been there, this is your prophet. This is your prophet. This is the guy who is questioning for three whole chapters, what are you doing? I mean, I know that we've been idolaters, Lord. I know that we've worshiped other gods. I know that we're immoral people. I know that we've said and done things we shouldn't. I know we've broken the covenant repeatedly. But the Babylonians, I mean, surely if you're going to judge us, you could send a nation to, to make conquest over us that's more righteous than us. Right? That would, that would be like us going, Lord, I know that y- you, you want to judge us, but North Korea? Really? I mean, that, that's the comparison. And so God says, nope, this is exactly what's happening. And so Habakkuk continues to struggle. Finally, he has to be content to trust in the Lord. And one of the most powerful statements that we read in this prophecy comes in chapter 2. When he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is such a powerful statement that Paul will pick it up in two of his New Testament letters, and it becomes a major theme, not just of Paul in the New Testament, but for the entire Protestant movement that would come some fifteen hundred years later. In Romans 1:17. It is, it is written, "The righteous shall live by faith." Galatians three eleven. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Through the good, the bad, and the ugly of our lives, God is asking, even when we don't understand, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Some of us trust the stock market more than we trust God. Some of us trust our spouses more than we trust God. Some of us haven't learned to trust very well. Habakkuk is one of those prophets that can teach us to do that in an incredible way. And this is his message. And interestingly enough, it doesn't come through a direct prophecy to a group of people. It comes through his own internal struggles. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but but oftentimes it's not a direct sermon that reaches people. The way you deal with your own internal struggles and questions and doubts is oftentimes a much more powerful witness to your neighbors than anything they might hear from me if you brought them into this building. It is a question of whether or not you will live that out faithfully. Habakkuk teaches us how to do that. And we see this lived out in one of Habakkuk's contemporaries as well. There's another prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah's ministry begins somewhere around 627 BC. It will continue for the next 40 years. And it will cover the last five kings of Judah and the Babylonian exile, the first parts of it. And so Jeremiah speaks as a bridge between those two very significant periods of history. And Jeremiah is a guy whose job nobody should envy. Nobody should envy Jeremiah. Well, I wanted to be like Jeremiah. You don't want this guy's job, trust me. How many of you have come home from work at some point and you've thought about how much you hated your job and then you turn on the television set and there was Mike Rowe describing someone else's job and you said, better him than me, right? This came up, I was just, I just, Looked up on the internet this past week, what are the 10 worst jobs in America? Uh, the most recent data we have is for 2015, and you can see them right there, starting with a firefighter. Where's our firefighters at? We got a few of them in the, in the building right now, all right? Um, here's, here's what you need to know. Highest injury rates across all occupations, and they face that within a work environment that includes on-the-job. Being on the job way more than 40 hours, often days at a time, and for an average annual salary of about $42,000. That's firefighter, okay? You're probably doing better than the firefighter. And then there's the taxi driver. Sorry, I thought that the, the movie Scrooge was hilarious, so I just thought I'd put that up there for the taxi driver. Taxi drivers, snarky customers, smelly customers traffic, snarling traffic, all kinds of different kinds of things that they deal with, very high stress environment, and they make about $23,000 a year, average across America. Not New York City. In New York City, they make more than me, but a lot of everywhere else, if you stretch that out across the country, they make very little money. And then a lumberjack. How many of you want to be a lumberjack? How many of you, when you were, guys especially, when you were a boy, you said, I want to be a lumberjack. Am I the only one? Okay. All right. There you go. Phil Snyder. Thank you, brother. There you go. How many of you want to do that now? Yeah, you found out what was involved in it. Highest injury rate. This is a crazy, crazy field. In 2014, this was ranked as the number one worst job in the country, 12 to 14 hour days in exchange for high injury risk and around $33,000 a year. These are people that you need to look at and go, better him than me. Right? I don't have it quite as bad. Well, for preachers, That guy is Jeremiah. Let me tell you why. Because Jeremiah is given this assignment. Preach in a time period in which the nation and the culture around you will continue to degrade. It will get worse and worse. It will not get better. Eventually, they're going to be exiled and no one will listen to you. So so think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. That's Jeremiah's call. It's a good thing, that he was sure of God's call. Take a look at this uh, calling in chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, we read that verse and we go, wow, that's awesome. That's the sovereignty of God at work. And before that means that's true for me. Before I was born, God had a, a path for me to walk in. Paul, in his letter to Ephesians, actually tells us that explicitly. But what if your path was Jeremiah's? These words aren't very comforting to a guy like Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I put you on this track and I gave you this assignment. And it's going to be so intimidating that three verses later he has to say, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Declares, deliver me? Deliver me from what? What's coming? Jeremiah, in order to be faithful to his calling, is going to have to lean into these words because he's going to spend the next 40 years preaching his heart out, and he will not see one single convert. He will not see things get better. He will preach over a period of time in which things continually get worse and worse and worse. How many of you want that job? Yeah, Jeremiah didn't want it either. To the extent that several chapters later he says this in chapter 20 verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, here here is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. I used to hear preachers talk about that when I was a young kid, and they had big smiles on their faces, and they're like, that's my calling. It's like a fire in my bones, and it would light up the crowd. And then I actually read the context, and I thought, I don't know if I want that calling. Because what, I, what Jeremiah is saying here, he's not saying with a smile on his face. He's saying, I want to quit and I can't. God has given me this responsibility to proclaim his word. And I'd just like to go to truck driving school. I mean, really, this is what I want to do. God, can you just let me be? Could I just leave these people and go build a bomb shelter and stock up on guns and ammo? That's really what I want to do right now. And God says, no, this is your call. This is what you're supposed to do. And you will be faithful at that. Like Micaiah, whose life we looked at last week, he gets one shot and then he's gone and he's never heard from again. But even that is better than Jeremiah. Forty years without a single convert. Lord, just let me quit. That's all I want to do. These people aren't listening. And the big showdown comes in chapter seven. This is a sermon preached somewhere around 609 BC. Jeremiah is standing at the gate of the temple. And he watches immoral, reckless, rebellious people walk by him into the temple. Because even though they're immoral, even though they care nothing about God, even though they are worshiping other gods, they come into the temple on the Sabbath because they think it is their religious ritual that will save them. And it is in the face of that that Jeremiah says this in chapter 7, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is the call that they would, that they would reiterate to call people to worship at the temple. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds... If you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You think that the temple will save you and what you don't understand is I'm only going to let you stay in this building if you do what I told you to do. As you can imagine... Those were not popular words. And Jehoiakim, who's king at the time, a very wicked man, has, as a result, as retaliation for these words, he has Jeremiah put in stocks to humiliate him. And so, actually, Pastor Chris has got an ox yoke in his office. I should ask him to bring it down. I didn't even think about that. That'd be a great prop for the 11, wouldn't it? Just kind of walk around. But this is what he does. He He just walks around in stocks, and he's publicly humiliated. People laugh at him until his message comes true. And finally, finally, we see that realized in Lamentations chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the province has become a slave. These are the words of a broken-hearted prophet who has now seen his warnings come true. When we get up and we preach the truth of God's word, the eternal majesty of his truth, we know that there are going to be good things, there are going to be bad things. St. Augustine called the gospel a pharmacon, from which we get our word pharmacology. It's something that brings life to some people and death to others. There will be those who will accept it and who will embrace it wholeheartedly, and we rejoice in that. And there will be those who will reject it and who in their own foolishness will run from God and his people, and they will be destroyed. And we, like Jeremiah, should be brokenhearted over that. Charles Spurgeon once said to a school full of preachers, if you can talk about hell without weeping, you are not fit to preach the word of God. And this is the prophet. He weeps over his city, he weeps over his people, he weeps over the death and destruction that has come at their own hand. And by the time this conquest is done, the population of Judah is less than 20,000 people. That's about 10% of what the population of that country was, for example, in the days of Isaiah. The Babylonians have come in in 597, 587, and 582, respectively. They have destroyed the city. They have exiled God's people. The Babylonians were fierce, ferocious people. They would cut the heads off of their victims and stack them in pyramids. And then they would take the most useful, the, the people considered to be high society, the physicians, the attorneys, the, those who were deemed to be of use, and they would enslave them, put them in chains, and bring them back to serve a country that was not their own. And that's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. And several changes will take place over the next 70 years as a result of that. I want you to see these. Number one, the Hebrew people are going to get a new name. Most of the survivors from the Babylonian wars were from the tribe of Judah. And so this slang term, it, it began really almost as a racist kind of a slur that the Babylonians would use for their Hebrew captors. They called them Jews. And up until this day, that name just kind of stuck. Secondly, they get a new way of life. The people that have been captured, they were used to farm. They were basically farmers. They were used to rural environment. Now they have to somehow make life work in the city. And finally, a new language. The people who went into exile spoke primarily Hebrew. The people who left and came back were primarily speaking Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonians. Jesus' primary language by the time he arrives on the scene is not Hebrew but Aramaic. And so a lot of things change. And it is yet in the middle of that that Jeremiah says to his people, seek the welfare of the city that you're in. Seek the welfare of the city that, in, that you're in. And on top of that, he tells them this in Jeremiah 29, 11, I have a good purpose for you, and it is not to harm you. It is to bring you hope and a future. Now, that's, we love that text, right? Our Africa mission has that text plastered everywhere. The context of it is not often so pleasant. These are people in exile. These are people suffering unspeakably. And this is what God says to them. And and here's here's the catch. There is no more temple, at least not now. They're removed from it. It's still there, but they're removed from it. So there's no temple. That means there's no sacrifices. That means there's no religious ritual. That means, at least in their minds, there's no God, right? Wrong, wrong. Even in the midst of all these changes, many of the people of Judah felt like this would be a temporary thing because they're not looking at God. They're looking at what they're going to get back to. This is just temporary. God's going to take us back. He would never destroy the temple. And so this is where I need my helpers. In fact, let me see. Musicians, would you all come up here with me for just a second, too? Those of you who are going to come up as part of our kids, come on up. Yeah, there you go. Oh, there you are. Come on up. Don't you love what they built? So, so here's, here's the thing. Here's, here's what I want to tell you while they're coming up and getting in place. The Lord, as a result of the people's lackadaisical attitude, their sense of we're going to come back. He sends them another prophet. This prophet's name is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is weird. He's just a weird dude. He's very eccentric. Uh, he doesn't, do his ministry the way a lot of his predecessors did. And so what he did is he did something very similar to what these young ladies have done. He built, now he built them out of clay. We used a different kind of brick, cardboard and Legos. And so this is what they did. And so guys, just come on and kind of gather around. Because when you build something like this, people gather. And especially if they see, hey, that looks like Jerusalem. Hey, that looks like the temple. Isn't this wonderful? And they're like, Patty, they got big smiles on their faces, you know, and it's all great. And this is good. And this is where we're going to come back one day. And this is so good. Ezekiel, thank you so much for reminding us of where we're coming from and where we're going to go back to. And it's about that time. What does Ezekiel do, ladies? Show them. Yeah. See, they were up here to protect the instruments. So, all right, you get, you get 50 points for getting it out this far. There was 500 points for hitting Dave in the head with one of these things. Y'all didn't do that. Yeah. All right, give him a hand. Thanks, guys. You can go back down. Okay. So this is what Ezekiel does. It's this crazy kind of stuff. But imagine that you've looked at a place that you long to go back to and he moves into the middle of it and he thrashes it and it's his way of saying, this is what will become of your city. And this is what will become of your temple. You're putting your hope in the wrong place. You're putting your hope in the wrong place. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar are going to destroy all of it. And finally, that day comes. In the next verse we see it. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. This is a sad moment in the life of God's people. This is the message of Ezekiel to his people. Guys, it is going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. No more Jerusalem, no more temple, no more sacrifices. So God's people have to figure out How to live in a foreign land. And nobody teaches them to do that any better than Daniel. Someone who will come some years after Ezekiel. Daniel teaches us, you and me, this question. How do I live my faith when I'm in the minority? I I put up on my social media yesterday that a lot of people talk about post-Christian America. The problem with using that term is America was never Christian to begin with. Okay? Uh, it's it's a wonderful country. I love living here. Our founding fathers were Christian. We were Christian majority. That's certainly the case. But there's a world of difference, folks, between Christian majority and Christian. Okay? As if somehow the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution came down on golden tablets from heaven. Okay? Jefferson was a deist. He's been separated from God for his sins for over 200 years now. Okay? That's, that's just the reality. Okay? And, and so... We now, when we look around, and for some of you, you're like, yeah, things are worse than they used to be. And in some sense, you're right, they are. Breakdown of the nuclear family, there's a lot of, you know, there's always been sin in our culture, but as we look, it's a little bit more visceral now. The only difference really is that 50, 60 years ago, we were really good at hiding it. Now we don't think we need to hide it anymore. Okay, so a secularized America is not a move from Christian to non-Christian. It's a move from cultural Christianity to now I can be proud of my sin and run it up a flagpole. And if anybody says anything to me, I can just quote judge not, which is half of a Bible verse without a context, right? That's the world we live in now. And so here's the question. We now know what really has been reality for a while, which is true genuine followers of Jesus have always been in the minority. How do we live out our faith when we're in the minority? And the story of Daniel teaches us how to do that better than any other. I wish I had time to go into that with you, but obviously you've got the two notable stories. The standing up against Nebuchadnezzar when he he tries to force... uh, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, maybe more familiar to you. That's their Babylonian names given them by Nebuchadnezzar. And they're thrown into a furnace, a burning furnace of fire, and they are not consumed. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar looks, he thinks possibly maybe they threw one in by mistake. And as it turns out, there is the presence of God there with them in a foreign land, a presence in a burning, fiery furnace and in a pagan nation more overwhelming and powerful than any presence God's people had felt in the temple during those last years when they were truly separated from their God. And then, of course, the den of lions. I had an old preacher tell me once, always call it a den of lions because there's a difference between a lion's den and a den of lions. A lion's den may or may not have lions in it. All right, And so Daniel was thrown in And the Lord sends his regent to shut the mouths of the lions. We see God do some powerful things in the life of Daniel. And it is all because Daniel was faithful to his God, served the people that he lived in. He actually lived out the the encouragement of Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the city that you're in. He was a high-ranking government official in Babylon. But he was also true to his God, some of you. Are in positions like that. There are probably some elected officials in front of me. There are people in law enforcement in front of me. There are people in front of me that are influential in our surrounding culture. And your role is to do what Daniel did, to seek the welfare of this region. But the only way you can truly do it is if you stay faithful to the Lord your God. The story of Daniel teaches us how to do that and how to do that faithfully. And over and over, we see, not just in Daniel's life, but we really see in this period of the exile more faithfulness without the temple and the sacrifices than we did in the lives of thousands of people who years earlier had lived within the shadow of the Hebrew sacrificial system. God is seeking to teach his people something through this. And through what he taught them, there's some things he can teach us as well. So let's ask this question. What do we learn from this period of history? Number one, wherever you are, there he is. Take a look at Acts 17, 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The apostles believed this and proclaimed it because the Hebrew people who lived before them had experienced it. The Babylonians removed them from their land, destroyed their temple, and there in a foreign land, surrounded by pagan culture, surrounded by pagan worship, they find the presence of the one true and living God in a way that they were never experiencing before. Because it is their relationship with him. Sometimes we think, well, if I had a better job or if I lived in different circumstances or if things were just different, we need to remember that God is. God is. And God is wherever we are. He is there in your pain and in your troubles and in your happiness and in your celebration. And it is in him rather than your location or situation that you should find your hope. Because that's what we we learn from the exile. They find the presence of God by the Euphrates River in a place far removed from a sacrificial system that they had so long depended on. That sacrificial system, even Paul in the New Testament tells us that the law and all of its accoutrements were sort of like a taskmaster. You might even compare them to a set of training wheels on a bicycle, right? Right? And so when my kids started to learn how to ride a bike, they had training wheels. They tip over a little bit too far this way and it catches them over this way and it catches them. But you've got to teach them to keep it up, right? That's the point. The point is not to ride like this, okay? That's just not good. Eventually, you're going to weigh as much as your daddy and that training wheel's not going to hold. It's just going to collapse because you weigh pounds. It's not going to happen, okay? And so this is what the Hebrews have been doing. For hundreds of years, throughout the period of the United Kingdom and the divided kingdom, they've been riding like this. And that training wheel was the law, it was the temple, it was a sacrificial system that was designed to get them up and ready for something new and better when Messiah came. And here they are. And so you know what God did? He removed the training wheels. That's what the Babylonian exile was. I'm kicking this thing out. All this stuff was intended to teach you about something greater, and you're still looking at the lesser thing. And this is not what I have for you. So I'm going to take the lesser thing away and teach you that I'm still there. Number two, religion is not relationship. Jeremiah wanted the people not to be tricked into thinking their religious ritual and the presence of the temple gave them some sort of advantage in relationship with God. Look, if you're living your life exactly the same way that other people around you are living their life, coming to the temple and making your sacrifice, or in this day coming to church and and still going out and living exactly the same way everybody else does, is of no avail to you. God calls for dynamic, substantive, transformative change that begins at the level of your heart. That can't happen through religion. That can't happen through ritual. There has to be a relationship. And what God's people discovered in the exile was God's presence that was more powerful without the temple than they had ever been with it. Here's the third thing we learned from the exile. Our darkest moments are when God is most active and powerful. Many scholars will refer to this period as Judah's dark night of the soul. There was a Catholic scholar in the medieval period that first originated that word and then the Puritans england and colonial america capitalized on that to describe times when you don't even you you can't even identify that you've ever even done anything wrong you're just in this state of depression and despair and you can't get out of it you feel like you're in a prison and when you pray you feel like god says nothing judah's dark night of the soul a time when they wondered where he was it's deep and it's long and many of you know what that feels like you will never know until you are on the other side of eternity how powerfully God was at work behind that curtain. And, and, and trust me, I can't tell you either. So if somebody presumes to tell, well, this is what God's up to, just you need to probably run from that individual. God's ways are so much higher than ours. The way he works in the world is so highly complex. The tapestry that he is weaving is so far above what we could comprehend. I'm not going to presume to sit here and tell you this is what God's doing in your life. That is what God's doing in your life. I will tell you this. You need to trust him because he is doing something immeasurably beautiful. He is doing something awesome with you. He is doing something awesome with our faith family. He is doing something awesome in the world. And there is coming a day when we're going to get to see it from his perspective. And the only way we do it is if we lean into those words that Habakkuk gave us, the righteous live by faith. Here's the final thing. We don't have a temple. We are the temple. We are the temple. Take a look at what the New Testament tells us about this temple construct and how it's expressed in this age. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's you. That's us. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's the, the message of Paul and Peter and James and those who were the servants of Jesus. Where'd they get it from? Jesus Christ himself is where they got it from, being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined, so you see the analogy here, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together For a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? You are the temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. Finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And what agreement has the temple with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Over and over and over again we see this theme in the New Testament. Now... I told you at the beginning of this, particularly when we got to Abraham, that there is some debate among followers of Jesus about Israel and its future, about the, the, the temple and the sacrificial system, and whether or not all that's coming back. And I'm going to say some things here, and some of you probably won't agree with me. That's fine. You can disagree with your pastor. It's okay. All right? You can do it. But I get questions sometimes, particularly regarding the end of the age, and more particularly as it surrounds this concept of a third temple that's supposed to be being built, right? And and I got people that they'll send me newspaper clippings about something happening in Jerusalem or they'll send me this or they'll send me that. And I don't mind that. I really don't. And I love you. And you know what? You, You could be right. I don't know. But I have had people ask me, where's that temple? Here's my answer to you. Every single Sunday when I get up here, I look at it. I'm looking at it. A lot of times I don't appreciate it the way I should either. And I'm sorry for that. But I'm watching the temple be built. And it's been building and building and building for 2,000 years. And when it is completed, in that moment when Jew and Gentile and male and female and Greek and slave and free, and every human being who is called by the name of Jesus, who is a member of the elect, is gathered, Messiah will appear. That's our future. And it doesn't come through a building that the author of Hebrews tells us is done away with as well anyway, it's obsolete. It's obsolete. I don't know, they might build it again. I just, I I don't see, I don't see how and I don't see why. Particularly when I read the book of Hebrews. I I don't understand why it would be, because it's not going to be salvifically effective to anybody. That building doesn't save anybody. Those sacrificial systems don't save anybody. It is the building of the temple of God and it is no longer based on an old covenant. It's based on something, the new covenant that the old covenant was always pointing us to. Something else that we find in the prophet Jeremiah, and this is where we're going to close today, because Jeremiah told us about this. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. If you've been with us through this series, you'll remember, there are four everlasting covenants in the Old Testament. They're still in full effect. Everything else has been fulfilled in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but there's four that still keep going. Covenant with Noah was the first one. We looked at that many weeks ago. Covenant with Abraham was the second one. Covenant with David There'll always be somebody from your line occupying occupying the throne of Israel. We know that's Jesus. This is the fourth one and the final one and the most powerful one and the one that can change your life today. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they shall no longer teach Each one his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No more law. At least not external. Because there is a transformative change that God has promised me through a prophet of old that would happen to anybody who turns away from their sin and puts their faith in the seed that God promised to come and, and restore all things back to himself. In the Messiah Jesus who comes back, who gives his life for your sins and mine, who is raised bodily from the dead. It is in that individual. It doesn't come from a sacrificial system. It comes from a man that the Israelites will, thank God for them, produce for the world. he offers it to anybody and everybody that's the only hope you have that's the only hope your kids have our kids are here with us this morning we pray for this weekly one of the reasons i love having lisa on our staff and doing what she's doing down there is because i know she does this jennifer has done this they, they pray weekly for these kids that they would know christ that this kind of thing would happen the writing of the law upon their hearts, the inscribing of the law upon their hearts. I will put the fear of me in you, he says to Ezekiel, so that you will not turn away. Because see, I know my kids and I love them, but they're just a little too much like their daddy for me to put my faith in them. That somehow they're going to be smart enough or because they're a preacher's kids or I don't know, they're they're smarter, they're they're better, they're, they're more moral. No, I've seen my kids. They're not. And neither are yours. When I pray for my Samuel, for my Seth, and especially for my Gracie, who has not yet come to know Jesus, this is what I pray for them. Jeremiah 31. Would you do that for my kids? Would you write your law on their hearts so that they will not turn away? So that they will know you from the least of them to the greatest of them, so that you can then remain just and remain God while simultaneously forgiving their iniquity and remembering their sin no more. The exile teaches us that what is coming in Messiah no longer requires a big, complicated ritual. It requires one thing, faith that the living God in the person of Jesus Christ has taken your sin, has been resurrected a new life to assure that you can live again as well. And if you put your faith and your trust in him, you'll benefit from this covenant today. What hundreds and hundreds of years of a sacrificial system in the nation of Israel could not produce, you can have today, no matter who you are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your people. I thank you for your temple. I thank you for your Messiah. I thank you for what hard moments like this in history teaches. And I pray this morning, if there are those who don't know you, you would you would do what you promised you would do in the new covenant. You would soften their heart. You would break their heart. You would crush their heart. You would replace it with a new one. We pray now in the name of Jesus that that would even happen in the lives of some of the kids that are here. That they would see a busted set of cardboard bricks behind me and realize the best thing they can build, God will ultimately one day destroy. And there's only one thing that matters. And that is faith in the risen Lord Jesus. May we cling to that. I pray it in his name. Amen.